Good morning. The Olympics is a world event that's meant to be a dream, a festival, celebration. And for the Japanese nation, it's a great honor to host the Olympics. But at the same time, it's a bit of a nightmare. Many feel that the national government and the International Olympic Committee have put money and national pride ahead of the well-being of the Japanese population. But the Japanese are a strong people. And I was intrigued to learn a little bit more about what makes them so strong. They've endured nuclear bombs, tsunamis, earthquakes, COVID, and now this. One cultural observer talks about gambaru. There's no real English equivalent to this term, but it means something like perseverance and patience in the midst of hardship. When Emperor Hirohito, after World War II, announced to the Japanese nation the defeat after uh, the setting off of the bombs, he urged the people not to express their emotions, that it would cause confusion. And Japanese children are taught from a young age to put the brakes on their feelings. So they hold it in, and it's considered perhaps immature or even selfish to think that my wounds, my afflictions, my trials are any worse than yours, because we want the harmony of the group, of the society. Other communities respond differently to trials and tribulations. They are unfiltered, they rant and rave. And there is, in fact, a more nuanced version of how to deal with affliction from the scriptures, that it's not so simplistic either to vent or to stuff one's feelings. Because God himself gets angry when there is injustice. He gets angry when his word is twisted or when his covenant is broken. He gets angry when there's evil that's left unchecked. And so the Christian who doesn't get angry at similar things that the Lord himself gets angry is not acting like God. So there's a little bit of an issue for us of how do we respond to affliction and hardship without venting and spewing out everything, and in so doing we, we defile others, or holding it all in and denying our very humanity as emotional beings, as people who have feelings and aspirations. I think our Psalm 129 gives us something of a pathway into affliction with hope of how the people of God are to walk through affliction and yet to have a solid hope. So we'll look at first three verses which talk about affliction and then the final verses that talk about hope. So first of all then, he starts off, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. He's talking about the nation of Israel, even though he's using the first person singular. And he uses that word greatly. It's repeated twice. This is not a minor scrape. This is not an inconvenience. This is a deep wound in the people of God. And we could go back to the very beginning, the youth of this nation, to see that the story of the God's people has really been one of affliction even in Genesis 4-8, where Cain kills righteous Abel. 
We see this wounding. We see this affliction in Egypt for 400 years in Exodus 1 and 2, where the Pharaoh ruthlessly enslaves the people of God for 400 years. And we see it for 70 years in Babylon, where the Lord himself is described in 2 Kings 17 as afflicting his own people because they've sinned, they've broken his law, and so forth. And then when we flick over the pages to the New Testament, the story continues. Ultimately, it's in Christ who's afflicted, but we see also in the book of Acts, in Acts 7, where Stephen is stoned, in Acts 12, where James is killed with the sword. And throughout the epistles and the literature, we see injustice, oppression, persecution, harassment of God's people, until finally the Apostle John draws back the curtain in Revelation, particularly 12, 12, where he says, the devil has come to earth in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The drama of God's people then is one of affliction, and then he sort of puts it even more deeply into their, their consciousness in verse 3, where he says, the plow, the plowers have plowed upon my back. Verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. I went online to look at plows and furrows and ridges, and there were all these really attractive images, rustic settings in the Middle Ages or different parts of my homeland, and it, it was sort of created this, this vibe of, of a warmth of ridges and fields and so forth. But then I realized that he was talking about the land being Israel and the plow being the enemies coming over it. And that, in fact, there were other images that came to me anyway as I was looking at this text of lacerated skin of 19th century African-American enslaved peoples, these terribly cruel, inhumane treatment that is portrayed in these visceral images online. And that that's really what we're talking about here, this wounding, this ripping of the skin, this plow, this metal object that comes five to ten inches through the, through the surface, disrupting the surface, aerating the soil so the seed can be put in it. That is what he's talking about. Make long the furrows. Making long the furrows. This, this is what he's talking about. These furrows are long. They are unrelenting. They were unresolved. There seems to be no reprieve. There seems to be no relief in this turmoil. And yet the, the story of the people of God is not ultimately one of defeat, but one of unexpected survival. Before I came to Boston, I was involved in a ministry that took me sometimes to Africa, particularly to Nigeria. And so when the story broke some time ago about some Nigerian schoolgirls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram, a radical Islamist group in northern Nigeria, my ears perked up. A Christian leader that I was quite familiar with himself had been kidnapped and his wife. And so this was a story, I said, what, what's going on here? And you may remember there was a hashtag that went around the social media, bring back our girls. But then the story sort of went silent. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I was reading Christianity Today magazine that had a feature article about the Chibok girls. And I realized reading this story from New England, from the comfort of Boston, that I really had very little grasp on what was going on here. I mean, it's sort of beyond belief to imagine 
that there would be a terrorist group, I mean, just pictured in my mind, a terrorist group that swooped down from the north and came to Chris, Lexington Christian Academy or Boston Trinity Academy or some high school in Malden or Watertown and swooped and, and snatched 300 teenage girls to an undisclosed location. And then for years, the police and CIA, FBI, they couldn't track them down. And yet this was the experience of those teenage girls, forced to convert to Islam, forced to marry Muslims, separated from their mothers and fathers, kidnapped in, in the night. But then I learned that in 2016 and 17, some had been released. They, they were Christians. They had smuggled a Bible into their captivity and had written down on pieces of paper various Bible verses. They had cupped their hands as they lay down on the ground to sing worship songs. They had whispered prayers to each other and they had the language of resistance. Their language was just be faithful. That's what they said to each other, just be faithful. The enemies made long the furrows, yet they did not prevail against him. And so the psalmist is speaking of God's people who have a hope. And in verse 4, we see the hope that in the rest of this psalm, in three areas, that the character of God, and then the actions of God, and then finally the destiny of those who reject God. So first of all, the character of God. He says, the Lord is righteous. One translation puts it, Yahweh the just. In other words, that he is utterly consistent. He always does the right thing. He always upholds justice and righteousness, even when circumstances seem to the contrary. He always is perfectly just. He is righteous in his very core of his being. So when he looks out on the world and he sees that his word is twisted or people fail to meet the mark or they go across his boundaries, he is offended. And when he makes promises, he doesn't renege, saying that's really not what I kind of meant. He keeps his word. And this is good news because God's people, the people of God, they are utterly flaky. They are inconsistent, both in their belief and in their behavior. So it is good news that the Lord himself is righteous and that he is the center of the universe. But it's also good news that he is righteous in his actions. And we see that in the end of verse 4. He says, he has cut the cords of the wicked. In other words, he acts against his enemies, against those who defy him. He cuts the cord. He doesn't just loosen the tether. It could be a cord or a rope around someone who is incarcerated, or it could be the rope that attaches the neck of the ox to the plow. But he cuts the cord of the wicked. This righteous God is illustrated throughout the scriptures. There's so many examples of cutting the cord. One I find very fascinating is the case of King David. David wrote many of the Psalms and came from a family background that was dysfunctional. Kind of, it's kind of helpful to read these stories in scripture of the dysfunction and the messiness of human family relationships back then, sort of gives us hope, perhaps today. Well, David was um, really at the receiving end of the hostility of his oldest son, Absalom. And Absalom 
wanted to steal, wanted to take his assets, his financial assets. He wanted to take his legal position, his authority, his position, his honor. He wanted to take the crown for himself. And in this rebellion, in this conspiracy, David's right-hand man, his chief counselor, had switched sides. He had betrayed David to follow Absalom. And the story is, is given in 2 Samuel um, 15 when he says, and it was told David, Ahithophel, that's the name of this counselor, Ahithophel is among the conspirators of Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the woman King David had committed adultery with. And so Ahithophel took revenge on David, seizing the opportunity of the conspiracy to undermine David. So he went to Absalom, gave him the plan to defeat David, and he said, I will strike down only the king. In other words, he would have the blood of David on his own hands. Well, Absalom rejected Ahithophel's advice. He actually accepted the advice of another counselor who happened to be a friend of David's, Hushai. This left Ahithophel in a bind. He had betrayed the king. He was rejected by the king's son. What were his options? He committed suicide. What I find fascinating about this little story is that David prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He did not pray for Ahithophel to die. He did not pray for his son to be killed. He asked God to work and trusted the Lord with the outcome. Little did David realize that the Lord had already ordained in 2 Samuel 17, 14 to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel and to harm, to bring harm to Absalom. The Lord had cut the cord of the wicked. A few years ago, we had a visit from a professor from Egypt. She was a professor of medicine. And she was very upset with us because in the basement, we have a lot of flags in the fellowship hall from different countries. And there was one flag from Saudi Arabia, a country that is, put it charitably, not very friendly towards Christians. And she was very upset. And I hope it's been taken down, but I'm not sure if it has been taken down. So we got to know her a little bit. We had some short-term teams who went to the Middle East, and we heard a little bit more of her story. As a woman, she'd been discriminated. As a Christian, she'd been discriminated against in her academic department. And on one occasion, she told us she had completed some research, and her chair, the chair of her department, asked her if she was going to present her research at a conference. And he told her that he was going to uh, erase her name from the top of the paper and insert his own name and present it as his own work. Well, she said, no, I'm not going to go to the conference, but I will sue you to God. I, I didn't know what that phrase meant. And maybe in Arabic it's clearer, but I thought, well, it probably means something about praying diligently in the situation. After the conference, one of her colleagues came to her and said, did you hear what happened at the conference? She said, no, I didn't hear anything. It turned out the 
chair of the department had finished reading her paper, stepped off the podium, and then he tripped on a step. And then he fell down, his head hit the floor, and then and there he died. Well, the colleague said to the Christian professor, you're not going to sue me to God, are you? <laughs> and then all the faculty members would see her in the corridor and they'd say, you're not going to sue me to God, are you? God acts in mysterious ways. The point being that he cuts the cord of the wicked. And this, in some ways, because of his righteousness, gives a hope in the midst of our affliction. But the third way that gives us hope is in the destiny of the wicked. And this is a difficult part for us as modern people to read. Verse 5 says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaths his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It sort of sounds like hate speech. And it's certainly true in Scripture, the word hate has, can have an emotional charge to it. But I think here it's less that emotional charge and more the other meaning of it, of being distanced from God. In other words, those like the Ammonites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians who disregarded the word of the Lord, who disregarded his covenant, who despised and dismissed the very presence of Yahweh, the great king in Zion, that they would be distanced from him. They were rejecting the very source of life and that there would be shame upon them, not because of a sort of petty rivalry or a revenge, but because this is what the just thing would be for a righteous God, to, in other words, remove their social status, to remove their position, to remove all that they had. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase puts it, may they grovel in humiliation. I mean, this is very intense language, but they were opposing what God stood for. But I want to focus on the final part about the blessing. It says, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Or may the blessing of the Lord not be upon you. Now, when perhaps you and I, we meet someone in the street, or we write an email, or a letter, or something, we may, I know I'm guilty of this, hey, God bless you, and, and it's often, it's no more than a, a vague wish. But for the Israelite, it wasn't. This was the difference between life and death, between health and prosperity, between success and failure, the blessing of God. And we can see that in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, 28, spelling out what the blessing of God on the people of God, in the place of God, for the purposes of God, really meant to have the blessing of God as he'd promised to Abraham. Today, as modern people, we often talk about success, success at school, success in business, success in romance, success on the internet, all kinds of success. That's what you need. That's what modern people really want is success. But for the Israelite, what they could not live without was the blessing of Almighty God. That made the difference between life and death. And to live without the blessing of God was the ultimate nightmare. So you can see what is coming out from the soul of the people of God as they walk towards Zion itself. Well, as we come to sort of close this reflection on the psalm down, I want to make a few comments about the, the book of Psalms and, and the songs of ascents and sort of span out some of the implications that might be for us today. 
The Songs of Ascent chart a course, a geographical course up to Jerusalem, but in another way, they are also the terrain, the terrain of the spiritual life of the people of God. And as we learned last week, there is a, a shift from an immature or a childish fear of God just based on punishment to one that is a mature fear of God based on his honor, his glory, his goodness, his righteousness and justice. There is this shift, this progression. But the Psalms also, more broadly, have this trajectory. It goes down, uh, the, the very bottom goes down to Psalm 88, probably the most pessimistic Psalm in the Psalter, to the very heights in Psalm 150, the very top. We have all the range in between of the people of God. But the Psalms themselves are located in the, all of scriptures, at the center of scriptures, which tell another story, another drama, a wider drama of creation. Someone has called it a, a seven episodic, seven episode drama of creation, of rebellion, of promise, the Christ, mission, judgment, and new creation. That there is this drama progressing throughout the scriptures. And the problem that I face, and the problem that many Christians face, is that I try to live the plot line, the storyline that the culture or my society or my world tells me is important. And then I try to fit in the Bible into that narrative. I try to take pieces of scripture and apply them to my life with, at one level, that makes sense, and that is a good thing that we should be doing. But at another level, it can assume that my little life, my small my small circle of life, is the center of the plot, is the, the driving force behind this drama. And so what needs to happen is a 180, that we see, my, I see my little life in light of this seven episodes of the drama. And as we do that, that changes then certain aspects of our life. First of all, in terms of identity. That during affliction, it's possible to experience very little hope because a person's identity is being shaped by their anger or their feelings and total emotions unfiltered that can be very toxic to others. Or their identity is so shaped by stuffing it, by gambaru, or the Chinese say chiku, of eating bitterness, of this undermining of the very nature of as we're made in God's image as emotional beings. And it can sort of distort the image or the, the character, the, the identity of a person. And what is needed is not that those things are totally wrong in themselves, but they are cut off from life. They're not life-giving. Psalm 87 speaks about the Gentile nations who find their springs in God. In other words, the source of life is from this river of life that comes from the throne of God. That a new identity is needed, a new identity in Christ that enables someone to live in the midst of affliction. The life in Christ of one who gave his own back to be plowed the one who gave his beard to be pulled, to be spat upon and shamed publicly, the one who, by whose wounds we are healed. We need a new identity based on Christ that is figured in this trajectory of from creation to new creation. But there's another implication of this new life in Christ that gives us life and an endurance and perseverance during our afflictions, and that is in terms of when the cord is not cut and when the cord is cut that we have hope in affliction even when the cord is not cut. The father in the New Testament in Mark 9, 24 said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There was this tension. He wanted healing, but it didn't come. He wanted relief, but it hadn't arrived yet. 
and being caught in this ambivalent state, already but not yet, if you like. And in those circumstances, it's important to remember the Lord himself hears the groaning. He hears the groaning of his people in Exodus 2.24 or in Isaiah 63.9. In their affliction, he was afflicted. This is a God who feels the pain of his people. But not only is there a remembrance, there's an exchange that needs to happen in the people of God. In other words, they exchange their burden, their yoke, their weight, their heaviness for his yoke and for his burden. The Lord himself says in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yoke is, it fits well. It, it's appropriate to each individual person. So there is this exchange, there is this remembrance, but there is also a sense of practicality in enduring hardship and affliction. At the moment, I'm reading through the book of Nehemiah, and I've been very struck by how Nehemiah is a courageous leader to a, a king of Persia. He's definitely a man who spends time seeking the face of God on his knees. But what strikes me is he's also a very practical man. He goes to the king and asks for letters. He goes to the king and asks for troops and cavalry. Ezra, the priest, he couldn't, he couldn't feel he could do that, but Nehemiah, Nehemiah did. He was very practical. And so going through, the people of God going through affliction when the cord is not being cut, there is a place for practical steps. And figuring out what those practical steps are in relationship to friends, family, or experts that enable the people of God to walk through this path of suffering. It's very important. Well, sometimes there's affliction and the cord is cut. There's hope and, and the cord, this trial has been cut. There's relief and celebration for it. And at that point, the people of God face perhaps a more difficult or certainly an equally difficult situation, and that is of carelessness, of presumption, of sort of thinking that it's all done by their own strengths, by their own expertise or their own resources and failing to realize that the only reason the people of God can persevere is because the Lord himself first preserves his people. In Hebrews 7.25, it says the Lord is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who come to God through him. In other words, that he is interceding for his people that they may be preserved until the end. And that this is a long game, this is a long marathon that the people of God are on and that he preserves his people. Well, the final destiny of the people of God is the heavenly Zion. This Psalm of Ascents talks about the earthly Zion, but the final location in the new creation is the heavenly Zion, the glory of God, that the people of God are to go to, where the Christ himself, the righteous one, is ruling in glory, where he will wipe away every tear, or as one poet has said, the place where every breath is praise. But the people of God are destined for glory, even if in this life, the people of God do not experience that relief. Fairly recently, I came across the story of a Chinese Christian, Lin Zhao. It's written about in a book called Blood Letters. Lin Zhao was a young woman who was, went to college, the, the best college in China, studied uh, poetry and literature. And she was caught up. She went to a, a Christian school in the 1940s near Shanghai, and then she was caught up in the excitement, in some ways, of the communist revolution in the 1950s. 
And she sort of abandoned her Christian faith during that time. And then towards the end of the 50s in the anti-rightist campaign, she was arrested and put in prison in 1960. And it was in prison that Lin Zhao reconnected with her faith. And she began to write poems and stories. And they sort of integrated beautiful Chinese poetry and literature with Christian faith. Her hope, she said, I belong to God, heart and soul and that she believed that God had a purpose in her life. Well, the authorities removed the writing implements and paper and pencil from her. So at that point, she used bamboo pricks to prick her skin and use her own blood to write poems on her clothing. Eventually, she was shot in 1968. The authorities went to her family and demanded a five cents fee for the bullet that was paid uh, to kill her, as is the custom. But the point being that she, the cord, in some senses, was not cut. And yet her life, which was in one, some ways rediscovered in 2004 online when her story earthed, was surfaced around the world, and a book was written about her life. Her life shows that the glory of God was her consuming passion. Even though in this life, she did not experience that relief. We live now looking through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Christ is the righteous one. He is utterly consistent. And as the people of God, we can look to the time when he will ultimately fix every wrong. He will right every injustice perfectly. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. He will ultimately make all things new. He's making all things new now. But he will make everything new in the new creation. Christ has cut the cord of the wicked. We see glimmers of it in the midst of our affliction now, but we look with confidence and a humble hope in the glory of God that lies before us. Let us pray. Lord, you were wounded for, our, for us. By your wounds, we are healed. Lord, you were afflicted so that we may not be crushed. You were persecuted so that we may not be abandoned and forsaken. Lord, I pray today that wherever we are at in our afflictions, that you would hear our groaning, that you would give us your yoke and hope that through whatever circumstances we face, we may know that you are ultimately triumphant and that you will give relief to those who suffer and true and right justice to all we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.